0: Never a dull moment. Please please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for bringing each and every one of us here once again to your house. To bring you our praise and our thanks. To give back to you. And to learn from you. To sit at the feet of the Master and, and, and just learn from you. Lord, we thank you that you care about us. As we talked about last week, you are our good and perfect Heavenly Father. You give us your expectations. You give us your instruction. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that not only do you give it to us in writing, but you enlighten us through your Holy Spirit as to what it all means, that we may understand it through spiritual eyes. We thank you that you are always with us, and and you are with us every step of the way. You don't leave us where you found us, but you continue to grow us and, and raise us to higher and higher levels of faith. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, surprise, here we are in November. Do you think that was going to happen? You know what that means. Now that we're officially in November, Halloween is come and gone, and retailers are now in complete, full steam ahead Christmas mode, aren't they? You probably have already started getting circulars in the mail. If you haven't already, you'll start seeing ad upon ad upon ad for jewelry and cologne and perfume, even brand new cars, all on sale for the Christmas season. What what it seems like every parent will be searching for, though, is this year's hottest toy that their kid just has to have for all of two seconds after it's unwrapped right? <laughs> then it's thrown in the toy box with the other toys. Since we're already in that season, I wanted to start out with something a little fun and, and run down the list of the most popular toys from each decade. Maybe you had these toys, or at least you, you heard of them. All these are from history.com, so if you disagree, you'll have to take it up with them as to which one the popular, popular ones. We'll start with the 1920s, because I don't think there's anybody here who was born before that. But uh, 1920s. The most popular toy of the 20s was was the yo-yo. It was the most popular toy of the yo- uh, of the 20s when it began to be manufactured in 1928. Kids did not need much to be entertained back then, did they? In the 30s, it was the Shirley Temple doll, whose who, whose inspiration in 1934, just six years old, already starred in 20 films, making her the most popular star and therefore, apparently, doll. The 1940s saw the explosion of the popularity of the Slinky toy. After Christmas demonstrations of the toy and none other than Gimbel's Department Store in Philadelphia in 1945, 400 slinkies were sold within minutes. Also in the 1940s, we saw the advent of Legos and Silly Putty. In the 50s, the most popular toy was none other than Mr. Potato Head. In 1952, the Hassenfeld brothers, who would form Hasbro, Inc., started manufacturing the first Potato Head with plastic body parts and a styrofoam head. You can imagine that styrofoam head didn't last very long. Later that year, Mr. Potato Head was the first toy in America to have its own television commercial. The very first toy. Honorable mentions in the 50s also go to the Hula Hoop, Barbie Dolls, Play-Doh, and Tonka trucks. This next one is probably no surprise, but the most popular toy in the 1960s during the height of the Cold War and a salute to US World War II soldiers was government-issued Joe, as World War II soldiers were called, or G.I. Joe for short. These foot-tall action figures by Hasbro were created as sort of a counterpart to the popular Barbie dolls and enjoyed massive success. Also in the 60s, we were introduced to the Etch-a-Sketch and the Easy-Bake Oven. In 1977, the Star Wars movie franchise was launched with the first entitled A New Hope. No one anticipated how incredibly popular that first film would become, and by Christmas of 1977, toy company Kenner hadn't even started production on action figures from the film yet. Instead, kids unwrapped vouchers for action figures of Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, and everyone else, which started to become manufactured in 1978. Still, these Star Wars action figures earned themselves the top spot for most popular toys in the entire 70s decade. Other popular toys launched during the 70s were the Speak and Spell and the Nerf Ball. 1983, saw the rise of tumultuous day after thanksgiving sales with fist fights and shoving over the massively popular cabbage patch doll. Cabbage patch kids dolls. Some of you maybe some of you were involved in those fist fights. <laughs> by the end of 1983, 3 million cabbage patch dolls were purchased. And even though the company who manufactured these dolls went bankrupt in 1988, go figure. Uh, They sold well enough to be the most popular toy of the 1980s. Other toys that got their start in the 80s were the Rubik's Cube, Transformers, the Koosh Ball, and Teddy Ruxpin. Similar to the Cabbage Patch craze in the 1980s, the 1990s saw the Tickle Me Elmo craze of 1996. That same year, H. Ty Warner, creator of the Beanie Babies, decided to retire production of some of those Beanie Babies and created a situation where parents scoured stores for these future collectibles, earning Warner over $250 million by the end of 1996. Who here still is holding on to their Beanie Baby collection? Convinced that's what's going to pay for their retirement, right? All right. (laughs) <laughs> Other wildly, wildly popular toys of the 90s were the Nintendo Game Boy, and for some very strange reason, the Furby. Still can't figure that one out. In 2006, Nintendo launched a new kind of video game experience called the Wii, which every kid in the 2000s wanted, and earned Nintendo the sale of 3 million Wiis by Christmas 2006, Making it the most sought-after toy of the of the 2000s. Other popular toys that were created in the 2000s were the Razor Scooter, Bratz dolls, and Webkins. And believe it or not, 2019. Here we are, at the tail end of the 2000s. That flew by, didn't it? In fact, we're in the last Christmas season of the 2010s decade. In the 2010s, the most popular toys were Monster High dolls, Angry Birds merchandise, Disney's Frozen merchandise, and a remote-controlled version of BB-8, the droid from the 2015 Star Wars film The Force Awakens. That was fun, huh? I went through all those. Some of you relived your childhood a little bit. All of these were wildly sought-after gifts, with many parents doing anything just to get their hands on these toys to present as gifts to their children. Did you know that when we accept Jesus' free gift of salvation, we become God's children, and He not only gives us the Holy Spirit as a gift, but along with that, different spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. We should see these gifts as not only much better than any toy of, of a Christmas season, obviously, but the most treasured gifts we could ever receive. According to one biblical scholar, what Paul turns to in this discussion about spiritual gifts can continue to fall under the general topic of regulation of Christian freedom, something we've seen the Corinthian church struggle with time and time again, from eating meat sacrificed to idols to some of the women in the congregation casting off God's created and established gender roles, to the unbiblical and wrong way they were observing communion. Now Paul turns to another topic that the Corinthians were misusing their Christian freedom in, and that was their use of their spiritual gifts. Instead of using them in love and humility and in building the church up, the Corinthians were using them to promote themselves, to build themselves up within the church. So the first point that we come to as we work our way through the first part of 1 Corinthians 12, is a struggle. And if you brought your Bible with you, please turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's in the New Testament. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, you're having trouble finding it, just keep flipping through the New Testament. It's a bigger book. You'll get to it eventually. Uh, and I want to start chapter 12 and uh, verses 1 through 3. Paul needed to give some introductory explanation to what he would further explain about spiritual gifts later on. And he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols whenever you were led, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. As one biblical scholar noted, what Paul is most likely doing here is preemptively responding to critics of what he will explain later on. Apparently, this is what was going on. We already know that many in the Corinthian church were Gentiles. They came from a Gentile pagan background. They had and were still coming out of a thoroughly pagan background Fused with the Greek and Roman deities and the idols that represented them. Paul notes that in verse 2 we read there. In their pagan background, they were not taught how to determine who was a false teacher of something or not. They didn't care. There was no need to. They just went with whatever philosophy sounded good at the time because they only worshipped idols anyway. There simply wasn't a need to determine what was true or false teaching about the Greek and Roman deities. That, that they left up to the philosophers to hash out. And as long as you offered worship to the idols, you didn't wor- worry yourself about the rest. You just knew, I did my offerings, I went to the pagan temple celebration, I'm good. I don't need to worry, about, worry myself about all this other stuff. That background did not prepare them for the Christian faith, though. No. The problem was that besides Paul, Apollos, and perhaps Peter passing through the city of Corinth and passing along teaching in connection with their biblical faith, there were apparently false teachers who were also influencing the Corinthians. Because of their lack of experience, the Corinthians were being led astray by these false teachers, and especially in this area of spiritual gifts. Believe it or not, One of the first heresies to come against orthodox biblical Christian theology was not against Jesus' deity, but actually against his humanity. Many false teachers were teaching that Jesus could not have walked the earth in human flesh and had not died a physical death or else he was cursed. And that's what we read in in verse 3 there. They emphasized Jesus' deity as a spirit and that he only seemed to appear Human, They saw Jesus' humanity as something inferior to an understanding of him as God and thus denied its existence altogether. These false teachers were also apparently teaching some weird things about spiritual gifts as well. If you think about it, if you get the very basic theology of, both, uh, of Jesus as both fully God and fully man wrong, there's no telling what else you'll get wrong. So Paul says in verses 1 through 3, don't listen to anybody who claims that Jesus did not exist in human flesh, no matter what they say. Contrastingly, anyone like Paul who declared that Jesus is Lord believed everything that was wrapped up in that. Those false teachers who didn't believe that Jesus was fully human also believed that he had no authority over their bodies. It just goes along with that, logically. In fact, Gnostics who believed this Christology believed that their spiritual selves were separated from their physical bodies, so much so that they could do whatever they wanted to with their physical bodies and it not be considered sin. You can see how quickly heretical and false belief in Jesus can lead down a very destructive path. So by declaring that Jesus is Lord, one was declaring faith in both Jesus' deity and humanity, and thus His authority over their souls and their bodies, in forgiving their sins through His sacrifice and resurrection, and His authority over their bodies in expecting obedience to His commands out of love for Him. Paul was such a one who made that declaration over and over again, and especially at the very beginning of this letter, in, in the very beginning of chapter 1. Therefore, he's saying he's not a false teacher, and anything he's instructed them with came from the Holy Spirit, including his instruction on correct use of spiritual gifts. So that covers the first few verses of this uh, section here. And secondly, we're going to talk about the source As as noted by one biblical scholar, what's interesting to see here is that in verse 3, we have mention of all three members of the Trinity here in verse 3. God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. You can see it there. Now in verses 4 through 6, we again have all three members of the Trinity, but in reverse. And there's a point to that. The point is the unity of the Trinity in bestowing spiritual gifts. You might have thought, you might have read this through before, and you see that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives our spiritual gifts to us upon our, our, our point of, uh, of salvation. But we see here in verses 4 through 6, that there's a, actually all three members of the Trinity are involved in this giving of the spiritual gifts. We read, um, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. That's Jesus, the Son of God. There are varieties of effects, but the same God, God the Father, who works all things in all persons. So again, mentions of all three members of the Trinity just in reverse. Since the Trinity is unified in their gifting of spiritual gifts, the Corinthian church needed to be unified in their practice of that. That's Paul's point to all of this. That's going to be a theme, unity. That's going to be a theme throughout the rest of the discussion that Paul will have about the purpose of spiritual gifts. Unity. Unity. The spiritual gifts needed to be used all in harmony with each other and not separate or disjointed from one another because they all had the same source. And that's what we just read in verses four through six. Yes, there are, are a variety of gifts, but that doesn't mean that there at all that there are a variety of purposes for those gifts. In other words, there are not a variety of goals as self-seeking and self-promoting use of them would naturally lead to. There are a variety of gifts, but the same in one Holy Spirit. The variety of gifts are are, are, are attributed to the Holy Spirit in verse 4. That's affirmed in verse 11, which we'll get to in a minute, where Paul says the distribution of the gifts is up to the Holy Spirit's decision. Next Paul says that there are a variety of ministries but one Lord. That's a direct reference again to Jesus or the second person of the Trinity since Paul just made the same exact reference in verse 3. So just as the Holy Spirit is in charge of the distribution of gifts, Jesus is in charge of the distribution of ministries or purposes for those gifts. Since the two work perfectly together along with the father neither one would give gifts or ministries that did not line up with each other everybody still with me so far okay sort of about half of you responded okay for example jesus would not call anyone to serve in a ministry without the spirit also giving them the spiritual gifts necessary for that makes sense and vice versa The Holy Spirit does not distribute spiritual gifts all willy-nilly without a called use for them, without them actually being used for something. And that's especially important, as we'll see as as we get to the end of our message today. Likewise, in verse 6, we see that the Holy Spirit's distribution of gifts lining up with the ministries and purposes Jesus has for each of us all fits perfectly together with the Father's will. You see, we use our specific spiritual gifts for specific purposes and ministries, but it's God the Father who does anything with them to influence change in our hearts and in the hearts of those we serve. Since the Father is the one who is making any kind of heart or life change happen, our spiritual gifts and purposes are only to be used in accordance with that knowledge. It's His will, and therefore they're His spiritual gifts, and His purposes for those gifts. And this is extremely important. God owns and has authority over all of it. He owns and has the authority over all of it. And because of that, we read in verse 7, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, not for our own purposes or building up of ourselves, but for the common good. Since God owns all of it and has the authority over all of it, our spiritual gifts are not at all for our own selfish or prideful influence, but for the common good. Here specifically, Paul means the common good of the building up of the church. Not only are they not for their own agendas... But what does that also mean? They're also not to be squelched, crushed down, swept under the rug. They're not to be squelched. That's not up to us. We don't have the authority to say, well, I know God has gifted me in this way, but I'm just not going to use it. Or I'm not going to use it to its full capacity. We don't have the authority over our spiritual gifts. We just read that. God is the one who has the authority over. We can't say, I know God has gifted me in this way, but I'm just not going to use it. I'm content to just sit here and do nothing more to build up Christ's church. We don't have that, that authority. We don't have the authority to say, I'm content to just show up to church and soak up and soak up and soak up God's word and never put it to use. We don't have that authority. We don't have the authority to say, I'm content to just take and take and take and never give anything through the use of my spiritual gifts. That's some pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? We don't have that authority. And I'm not just emphasizing it because I'm a pastor. All of this comes right out of what we just read. We just read it, it's not my words. Paul needed to establish this background theology of spiritual gifts in general and how the Corinthians needed to see them first before he could go on with any further explanation. And God is establishing this background theology of spiritual gifts for us. Their distribution, their purpose, and His authority and His will over them in our lives. So we talked about the struggle that the Corinthians had. We talked about the source of where these gifts come from. And now we're, going to talk, we're just going to just start into the specifics. And you'll see what, what, I, what I mean by this. Next, Paul gets into some, a couple, of the specific gifts. We're, we're not going to cover all of them this morning. This is not an exhaustive list either. Because Paul combines some of these with others further on in the same letter and in the book to the Romans, the Ephesians, and Peter lists some of these in 1 Peter. So we can't fall into the trap of thinking we have to have one of these gifts on this specific list, or else we don't have any gifts. We can't fall into that trap. We could have one that's not on this list. So as we read through these, don't think, oh, I don't see anything on this list that I think the Holy Spirit has given me. He must not have given me anything. We clearly see from verse 11 that the Holy Spirit gives at least one spiritual gift to each believer in Jesus, and therefore we must use it for God's purposes in His kingdom. So what are these? I'm I'm, I'm going to read through them. We're only going to cover a couple of them this morning. For to what is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit... "...and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the, same, by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues." And this is the verse I keep referencing. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. We're only going to cover the first two in this list this morning. If you're intrigued by the rest on that list, come next week. We're going to be digging into those more next week. So numbers 1 and 2 are listed in verse 8. And these are word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. As noted by one biblical scholar, this does not refer to a word of special prophetic wisdom that has been revealed directly through the Holy Spirit to an individual. What the term word of wisdom, the first one there, refers to is the clear understanding of biblical doctrine. The clear understanding of biblical doctrine. The word for wisdom in the Greek means clarity or insight and in this context it's clarity or insight of right and biblical doctrine according to one biblical scholar paul outright refers to himself as having this gift in chapter 2 verse 6 when he tells the corinthians yet when i am among mature believers i do speak with words of wisdom talking about that deep that right doctrine But not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world, obviously, or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten, but biblical and right doctrine. Paul says he has that gift there. There he's referring to the words of wisdom, especially pertaining to salvation found in Jesus and all the doctrine going along with that. That goes hand in hand with number two on our list, word of knowledge. In this context, again, as has been noted, it's not some individual prophetic message. Paul referred to this knowledge time and time again throughout this letter when he used the phrase, do you not know? We've seen that phrase how many times now as we've worked our way through this letter of 1 Corinthians? Do you not know? In connection with the Corinthians' knowledge of doctrine and right living, but it not affecting their lives. They had it up here, but it didn't do anything in here. So the gift of knowledge is the gift of taking the word of wisdom, the clarity of doctrine and right living, and applying it effectively to personal lives. According to one biblical scholar, Paul's entire point in this section is to point out the unity, again, there's that theme, the unity of the gifts distributed by the Holy Spirit. In that case, it seems best to understand that Paul included both what would be considered miraculous gifts and non-miraculous gifts. The first two, words of wisdom and words of knowledge, along possibly with the gift of faith somewhat in verse 9, should best be understood as non-miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that come with the study of the word of God and spiritual maturity. For instance, not just pastors have the first two gifts. That's that's a myth. You probably know spiritually mature believers who are not pastors, they're not Bible teachers, they're not elders, they're not deacons, but they know the doctrine of the Word of God and they know how best to apply it to everyday situations. These people would have these gifts. And it doesn't really seem out of the ordinary, right? It doesn't seem out of the ordinary. But it's still very necessary It's still very necessary, especially to the faith growth of others who seek their counsel. The other miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit cannot be fully delved into this morning. That's what I mentioned already. You'll have to come back next week to get more of an in-depth explanation from the Bible about how best to understand these other gifts, such as healing, prophecy, speaking in tongues, and interpretation of tongues. There's a lot of confusion regarding these gifts. So, shameless plug, I encourage everyone here to return next Sunday to hear more about those. For now, like I mentioned, this is just an introductory message on spiritual gifts in general and what their purpose is. Their purpose is unity. And their purpose is to be used. All three members of the Trinity are involved with the gifting and use of our spiritual gifts, and as such, they must be used in glorification of Him. We'll get into more of the spiritual gifts next week, but for now, if you believe... That you have the gifts, you have the gifts of insight into and clarity of what Scripture says about any given topic and the sensitivity and integrity to relate that to others. Use that. Use those gifts. If you believe the Holy Spirit has given those gifts to you, use them. You do not need to teach a Sunday school class. All right? Don't be intimidated. You do not need to teach a Sunday school class. You don't even have to have a ministry or Bible degree. You can make yourself available to those who are new to the faith or have only been spiritually growing for a few years. And you can increase the amount of your knowledge by studying the Word of God more. I'm not the only one here who can be a a source of biblical wisdom and knowledge. I know there are multiple people here right now, and others who are not able to be with us right now, I know there are multiple people in our church body who have these spiritual gifts. There are multiple people who make up our local church here who can be an indispensable source of spiritual maturity to those still in the toddler stages of their faith. They're here. Don't discount that. Those of you who have those gifts, don't discount that. These gifts are crucial to the overall spiritual growth of our church. Utilize them. Think about it. Paul counts it right up there with the so-called cooler ones like healing and prophecy and tongues. It's on the same level as these other ones that Paul writes about and just as important. So if you're new to faith, in Jesus, or you're still seeking what it's all about, or if you've only been a believer for a few years, seek out those who you know have those gifts. And those who have those gifts, look for ways to use them to help mature your brothers and sisters. Let's stop and think about this for a second. Our church can only spiritually grow as much as those who have these first two gifts on this list are actually using those first two gifts. I'll repeat that again for anybody who missed it. Wake, bring your head back up. Our church can only spiritually grow as much as those who have these first two gifts that we talked about this morning are actually using them. After all, and this is what we'll end with, God's goal for the church is that we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we, the whole church, will be mature in the Lord. So those of you who have these first two gifts, use them so that we can come to that goal, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So if you have these first two gifts, Use them so that our church can continue to spiritually grow so much more so so that we can measure up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just this introductory message into what are spiritual gifts. Lord, we thank you for the first two that we just covered briefly today. We thank you for their importance to the growth of the church. We thank you that they're integral to the growth of the church, Lord. I pray that if, I, I pray that those who are here today, and who may listen to this later on in the future, if they know they know they have these gifts. I pray that they wouldn't squelch them, or they wouldn't think that they're good enough, or anything like that. But Lord, I pray that you would set them on fire spiritually and, they, and unleash them to use those gifts, to seek out those who are perhaps newer to the faith, are still in the first stages of it. And those who are in those first stages of their faith, that they would seek out those they know are, are spiritually mature and have these gifts uh, to, to deepen their faith and to grow in their faith so that we can all come to that goal of measuring to the full and complete standard of Christ. Lord, we thank you uh, for these words, these words of encouragement that we may all use the spiritual gifts you have given to us and and, and be unleashed uh, to use them in the full power of God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.